The following sermon was delivered by Senior Pastor Reverend Dr. Scott Black Johnston in the sanctuary of Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church in New York City. We welcome you to worship with us every Sunday, in person or on live stream. For details, go to FAPC.org. And now, here is Reverend Dr. Scott Black Johnston. The book of Acts tells the story of the disciples after Easter, after the crucifixion, the resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. The Acts of the Apostles, to use the book's full title, is basically a collection of the adventures of the early church. The author of the book of Acts is Luke. Yes, that Luke, the same guy who penned the gospel according to Luke. Luke starts the book of Acts the same way he started his gospel. He addresses Acts to a mysterious someone called Theophilus. Listen now for God's word to you as it comes to us from the book of Acts, chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. In the first book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus did and taught from the beginning until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over the course of 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. While staying with them, he ordered them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait there for the promise of the Father. This, he said, is what you have heard from me for for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. This is the word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. This past week, I received a letter in the mail stamped in big, bold type with the word, urgent. It was addressed to Scott Black Johnston or current resident. <laughs> I asked my wife Amy, how urgent can this really be? And she took the envelope from me and put it in the shredder. You can get a pretty good sense of a letter simply by glancing at how it's addressed. We've all received letters with the hopelessly generic dear voter or dear valued customer. <laughs> Such greetings demonstrate that the sender doesn't know the first thing about us, our name. Elaborate titles at the top of a letter, the honorable, <laughs> the esteemed, the reverend doctor, may indicate respect, but more often they are trying to soften up the recipient before asking a favor. 
Most business emails, the hammer and tongs of day-to-day problem-solving begin with a straightforward name. Jonah, Werner, Sarah. On the other hand, emails that begin with, hey, Jonah, hey, Werner, hey, Sarah, skew toward the social. A a small difference in salutation can convey a big difference in tone. Dear Mark is about as basic as it gets, but invert it. (laughs) Put Mark dear at the top of a letter and a touch of gentleness is contributed to what follows. Our greetings set the stage for what we want to communicate. And this is one reason that biblical scholars find Luke so fascinating. Luke starts his gospel with the words, I have decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. In Acts, in today's text, Luke again addresses Theophilus. Now, now typically, we, we brush past the words, dear Theophilus, to get to the good stuff. But this simple address, dear Theophilus, raises all kinds of questions for biblical scholars. Who is Theophilus? Why does Luke call him most excellent? What's the identity of this masked figure? If we can answer that question, maybe it will help us understand what follows. And so the debate begins. Some historians argue that Theophilus was a Roman military officer, and this makes sense because Romans in positions of authority were often called most excellent. Others speculate that Theophilus was a lawyer who worked with the Apostle Paul. And still others argue that most excellent was actually a religious title. And these folk tend to speculate that Theophilus was a Jewish rabbi. Whoever Theophilus was, Luke certainly made the name popular. Down through the centuries, a a whole slew of babies have been baptized Theophilus. Scientists, artists, explorers. The the name has worked its way into other languages, too. The Latin translation of Theophilus is Amadeus, as in Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. There's a crater on the moon named Theophilus. (laughs) There's a rapper over in Brooklyn named Theophilus. Theophilus London. (laughs) Does the proliferation of Theophilus help us unmask Luke's mysterious pen pal? Well, actually, it does make a sort of surprising point. Perhaps the identity of Theophilus has been right there under our nose all along. Say what? Consider this. Theophilus is two common Greek words that have been glued together. Theos, God, and philus, friend. 
So woodenly translated, Theophilus means God friend. In other words, Luke begins his writings with an open-ended, affable greeting. Hey, God friend. Or more accurately, hey, most excellent friend of God, have I got a story to tell you. This jaunty salutation beckons to anyone who picks up the book of Acts. Simply put, Luke gives every reader an opportunity to be Theophilus. Are you spiritually curious about Jesus, dear Theophilus? Are you searching for a community infused with righteousness and love, dear Theophilus? Are you looking for God, dear Theophilus? Wait, we ask, is is Luke talking to me? Yes, says the good book, holding up a mirror. You, most excellent reader, you are Theophilus. You are a friend of God. Does that seem like a good thing to you? Do we want to be friends with God? I ask because friend is not typically how people describe their relationship to the Almighty. We may say God is my savior, God is the spirit animating my soul, God is my creator, but God is my friend? Not so much. Why the hesitation? After all, we do value our friends a lot. So why might claiming to be a friend of God give us pause? Well, maybe maybe it's because it it just feels too casual. (laughs) It's it's stoner theology. It's a slurred confession uttered by a campfire. God's my buddy. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe we think our relationship with God ought to be just a little bit more formal. Spit and polish, shoulders back, chest out. Maybe, although these days I don't think people of faith are especially hung up on formality. I think it comes down to this. When facing the world's vast problems, we want to wield something more substantial than a name tag that says, friend of God. This past week, the news of the day included reports of immense wildfires in Western Canada, sobering signs that our planetary home continues to warm. And then there were photos of shell-shocked soldiers battling for the city of Bakhmut in Eastern Ukraine, a place that both Russia and Ukraine have called a meat grinder. On Friday, just a couple days ago, news organizations released video evidence that the world's governments are far from figuring out how to respond with compassion to immigrants who have fled violence and tyranny. Film of Somali families, including at least one toddler, being taken into the middle of the Mediterranean Sea 
and set adrift in a raft will break your heart, test your faith, if not in God, at least in humanity. And that's just the stuff in the papers. On a personal level, we are buffeted by, by stories told by family members and torn up by the news we get from doctors. Just stepping out into this troubled world makes a person yearn for a powerful God, a deity who will crush despots and vanquish diseases. We cry out for a Messiah who will sort things out. Don't give me a sugar pill. Don't stick God is my friend on my chest. I want an extra strength deity. I want a God who moves the needle. We're not, of course, the first people to pray that God would pursue a thunderous course of action. Our tradition is, is actually quite sympathetic to our cries. Patiently, the good book hears our frustration and then nodding, it starts to tell us stories. According to the book of Exodus, when the Hebrew people were in the wilderness, when that escaped group of slaves was beset by enemies on all sides when they were worrying about where to get food and water for their children, when they were wandering through the dust without hope or home. It was at that moment that God pulled up a rock and sat down with Moses. Exodus describes it like this, exactly like this. God spoke with Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. Okay, well, that was Moses, right? I mean, Moses, he was a prophet. What about us? Hold the phone, says Scripture. You remember the Last Supper, the Passover meal Jesus celebrated in Jerusalem? As violent forces crouch in the shadows, Jesus sups with his disciples. He sits down with his followers. Women and men moved by his teaching, taken with his gentleness, challenged by his decency. Christ breaks bread. He sends a jug of wine around the room, and he looks at them, people who have lived every waking moment under the thumb of despotic rulers, and he declares, I do not call you servants, I call you friends. Why does God keep calling us friends? What's so important about friendship? In 2018, John Jay College released the New York Slavery Records Index in that collection of records, Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church discovered that Betsy Jackson, a founding member of this church in 1808, was also an enslaved person in the home of this church's first pastor, John Broadhead Romaine. Romaine was not, as far as we can tell, an apologist for slavery. He would eventually call the terrible institution a sin in one of his sermons. And yet, even as he was working to found this church, 
Romain and his family participated in one of history's most dehumanizing practices. One of the documents released by John Jay College was a record of manumission. It's a legal record issued at the moment when Betsy Jackson was freed by John Romaine. Reading this official record highlights the insidiously cruel nature of slavery. One sentence in the manumission reads like this. Elizabeth shall and may at all times hereafter exercise, hold, and enjoy all and singular the liberties, rights, privileges, and immunities of a free woman, fully to all intents and purposes as if she had been born free. As if she had been born free. As if she'd been born free. I wonder what John Romain thought when he signed his name after those words. I don't know. <laughs> I can't see into his heart. And I'm not his eternal judge. But I can hope. I can hope that those words convicted him. I can hope that those words drew a confession from his lips. I can hope that those words helped him see with clarity the moral horror of an institution that would deny that any child of God has not been born free. I hope that even as the ink dried on his signature, Romain recalled Jesus' words at the Last Supper. On that night, as they had throughout Christ's ministry, a diverse crew of folk gathered around Jesus, women and men, rich and poor, Jew and Gentile, young and old, healthy and sick, fishermen and doctors, merchants and seamstresses, scanning that ragtag posse, Christ named them. I do not call you servants, he said. I call you friends. What if friendship is at the core of the loving ethic that Jesus came to promote? What if friendship is the fabric that Christ wants his followers to weave for the world? What if Valuing friendship, modeling friendship, turning strangers into friends is why God called the church into being in the first place. Dear Theophilus, instead of brutal hierarchies and power plays, instead of masters and servants, instead of might makes right and demonizing the other, what if friendship is God's deep intention for us, for all of us? What if friendship is God's plan for ordering human relationships? What might that mean? I think that's a good question for us. 
The relationship that we have with our, our friends is unique. It's, it's different from other relationships. And, and some say this is because friendship grows out of shared interests. And, and maybe that's true. Sometimes that's true. But our best friends don't necessarily root for the same teams, like the same foods, or even vote for the same political parties. <laughs> Somehow friendship can transcend and even erode those divides. I, I think it's worth noting that when Christ says, I call you friends in the Gospel of John, he does so at the end of his ministry, after a three-year-long road trip with these people. Hardships endured, crazy adventures survived. These are the building blocks for friendship. Deep friendship doesn't happen just because people check the same boxes on a personality quiz. Deep friendship is forged in fire. We have friends who have walked through hell with us. We know friends who have made astonishing sacrifices who will ride or die for us. Greater love has no one, says Jesus, than to lay down his life for a friend. In a way, our entire faith hangs on those words. So, of course, we shouldn't worry as to whether friendship is a robust enough response to the world's woes, because on the contrary, it turns out that friendship is the way that God is seeking to save us, all of us. And Luke gets this. The words, dear Theophilus, at the top of Acts are not a meaningless greeting. Come on now, prods Acts. God has already clicked like on your Facebook page, and now it's time for you, dear Theophilus, to get busy. Busy? <laughs> Doing what? <laughs> in a world torn by sectarian conflict, in a country where political divisions gridlock our government, in cities where race and class divide and alienate, people are desperate for an alternative to the status quo. People are hungry, really hungry, right now, for a different sort of community. In a few minutes, we're going to ordain and install a new class of officers here at Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church. As part of this service, we will ask the new officers a whole series of constitutionally required questions. Lots of questions. Questions about following Jesus, questions about furthering the peace, unity, and purity of the church, questions about loving neighbors and serving those in need. My colleague in ministry, the Reverend Tom R., recently declared that he had reached a conclusion as to which of all these questions was the most important. <laughs> okay, I'll bite, I responded. Which is the most important? 
Well, he said, it's buried in, in the middle of the list. It's, it's not controversial. It slips by most people. We say it with ease, but without it, we are lost. The most important vow we take in the ordination service is this. Will you be a friend in ministry? Tom is absolutely right. If we hope to be God's people, if we're going to say that we are the church of Jesus Christ, we have got to look in the mirror every morning and see Theophilus. <laughs> and then we've got to march out into the world and see a whole lot more of the same. Friends of God, go forth from this place. And as you go, have courage. Hold fast to what is good. Do not return to anyone evil for evil. Strengthen the faint-hearted, support the weak, help the suffering, love and serve the Lord. Amen. We hope this sermon has been meaningful to you and given you a measure of hope, encouragement, and good news. If you would like to make a donation to support this audio ministry, please visit fapc.org give. Thank you and blessings to you on this day.